You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, which came out in 2003 and was directed by Peter Weir. It stars Russell Crowe, Paul Bettany, James Darcy, Robert Pugh, David Thurfall, Lee Ingleby, Max Perkis, Max Benitez, Edward Woodall, Chris Larkin, and Billy Boyd. The genre would be historical war epic. of war will cripple them with basic repairs we can get home as we are we're not going home the power of nature will threaten them our enemy has more than twice our guns more than twice our numbers and we are supposed to stop them torn between fulfilling his duty captain's not called lucky jack for no reason phantom or no lucky jack a lover and the lives of the men he commands steady he must face the invincible the men would follow you anywhere as a friend, I would say that we should have turned back weeks ago. It's leadership they want. Strength. Find that within yourself, and you will earn their respect. Turret When we board, you'll take him out of the ship. Take him out of the ship. Thank you, sir. For home! And for the prize! Stay off to us. When it comes to modern naval war slash adventure movies featuring a cross-section of men, young and old, out on the ocean working together to keep afloat, also fighting each other to maintain their sanity, and fighting an equally or more powerful vessel to preserve their way of life, it's actually a surprisingly easy Mount Rushmore to put together. There is previous episode, recent episode, The Hunt for Red October, along with Crimson Tide, Das Boot, and this gem from just over 20 years ago. It's an easy list to put together because what these films have in common is more than just water-based thrills. There's a humanity pervading each of their stories, despite the emphasis that they are aboard a vessel with the intent to fight and sink other vessels. God help you if you're wrong. If I'm wrong, then we're at war. God help us all. We are not only presented with the aim of their overall mission, but also an engrossing taste of what life is or was like on this crowded and cramped floating world. And when it comes to the latter part, there has been no film quite as successful at enveloping you into that world than this first, and unfortunately still only, adaptation of Patrick O'Brien's successful series of novels chronicling the ongoing adventures of the British warship The Sloop, led by Captain Jack Aubrey during the Napoleonic Wars of the early 1800s. In this adaptation, the ship is now referred to as the HMS Surprise, and its intrepid leader is portrayed by Russell Crowe in one of his last great leading man roles, just a couple of years after his Oscar win for Gladiator. Crowe was seemingly born to play a character like Lucky Jack. He's also referred that way. And that he is, of course, a charismatic presence in period-set epics like this, bringing forcefulness, warmth, and jocularity to his performance. Do you see those two weevils, Doctor? I do. Which would you choose? 
Neither. There's not a scrap of difference between them. They're the same species of Kerkulio. <clears throat> if you had to choose, if you were forced to make a choice, if there was no other response... Well, then, to... if you're going to push me... I would choose the right-hand weevil. It has significant advantage in both length and breadth. There, I have you. You're completely dished. Do you not know that in the service, one must always choose the lesser of two weevils? <laughs> We could not help but just relish hanging out with this guy and watching him at work. He's a patriot for queen and country, of course, but he genuinely cares for and loves his crew. It's a tricky balance, of course, as this sometimes involves making some tough decisions, which is, of course, highlighted in one tense sequence roughly halfway through the movie. You see, Aubrey has to decide as to whether to sacrifice one of his own men, a beloved crew member who is trapped out on the raging ocean on a floating extension of the Surprise, which is caught in a draft and now threatens to pull down and sink the rest of the ship. So, of course, the decision is made to chop the rope connecting this crew member, Private William Mowat, played by Edward Woodall, resulting in that private's death. It's a sad, rough moment, and at the very least, Jack takes it upon himself to be the first one to start chopping that rope. Now, the crazy thing is that we have pretty much seen a very close variation of this same scenario play out in every other similar movie that I just listed, along with dozens of others within this subgenre. And yet Weir, along with co-writer John Colley, not only ring this scene for maximum suspense, but give it more depth than most, as we've already gotten to know this character, Will, very well earlier. He's the one who witnessed the building of the phantom ship, the French Archeron, that Aubrey is now chasing. Several years earlier, resulting in a surprisingly detailed scale model crafted out of wood for the captain to utilize for their mission. Admittedly, in this scene, I watched that one moment of the model and it almost pulls me out of the movie, just briefly. I mean, did they have 3D printers back in the 1800s? She's Yankee built, sir. See, he was getting married there and his wife's second cousin, he works in the yards. So Willia saw the ship out of water. So I... I saw there was something right strange about her, and so I asked Joe, and... So he described it to me, and I knocked you up a model, sir. This framing is accurate. Exactly accurate, sir. But regardless, Will's loss is not only keenly felt during that tense aforementioned sequence, but we feel the repercussions of it for the remainder of the movie, as it relates to not only Aubrey and Will's closest shipmates, but also how a troubled midshipman, Hollum, Lee Ingleby in one of this film's most affecting performances, is unfairly blamed by others for this incident, leading to more tension and tragedy. The man pushed past you without making his obedience, yet you said nothing. Why? I intended to, sir, but the right words just didn't... The right words? He was deliberately insubordinate. I've tried to get to know the men, sir, and be friendly, but they've taken a set against me, always whispering when I go past and giving me looks. I'll set that to right, sir. I'll be much tougher on them from now on. You see, one of the more brilliant aspects of this movie and its screenplay is how we see again and again 
just how interconnected everyone is aboard this contained floating world. Every action by someone on board has consequences not only for himself, but others around him, and often in unexpected ways. And the critical relationship at the center of all this becomes between Jack and the ship's onboard physician, Dr. Stephen Maturin, very winningly played by Paul Bettany. These two just have fantastic chemistry together, and several scenes of the two either bantering, debating, or simply jamming together on string instruments, these are definitely among the film's highlights. Stephen, I invite you to this cabin as my friend, not to criticize nor to comment on my command. Well, should I leave you until you're in a more harmonious frame of mind? What would you have me do, Stephen? Tip the ship's grog over the side. Stop their grog. Nagel was drunk when he insulted Holland, did you know that? Stop 200 years of privilege and tradition. I'd rather have them three sheets to the wind on occasion than have a mutiny on my hands. You see, I'm rather understanding of mutineers. Men pressed from their homes, their chosen occupations, confined for months aboard a wooden press. Stephen, I profoundly respect your right to disagree with me here in this cabin, but I can only afford one rebel on this ship. Paul Bettany kind of steals the movie as someone who not only devotes himself towards keeping the crew alive and kicking, but has distinct passions of his own. Stephen also prides himself to be a naturalist, with an endless fascination for discovering new wildlife. And this comes to a head with a surprisingly endearing sequence late in the movie as we watch Thomas amble around the rocky terrain of the Galapagos Island to gleefully discover new insects and lizards. Not only is this a beautifully shot sequence, giving this island an otherworldly feel thanks to DP Russell Boyd, who was a longtime collaborator of Weir's, but the enthusiasm shown by Stephen just starts to feel more and more infectious. Come on, pack up your things, we should be going. Cancer? No, to the other side of the island. But, sir, there must be at least ten miles. Well, then there's not a moment to lose. That's where I saw my flightless cormorant, Mr. Blakeney. Come on! As he has often been prone to do, Bettany brings genuine warmth and intelligence to this character. And when you know it, even this side quest to Galapagos ends up having significant implications for the remainder of the film. Everything's connected rather seamlessly in this movie. This includes the pretty clever discovery of a new insect, which ends up being the basis for Aubrey's final battle with the Archeron towards the end of the film. So, Stephen, did you get to see your bird? No, well, yes, but I couldn't catch one. Well, my greatest discovery was your phantom. Indeed it was. I'm sorry you had to leave the majority of your collection behind, Stephen. In actual fact, um, Mr. Blakeney and I did make one very interesting find. Is that right? Let me guess. A stick? Tell him about it, Mr. Blakeney. It's a rare phasmid, sir. A phasmid? It's an insect that disguises itself as a stick in order to confuse its predators. Speaking of battles, the film doesn't actually feature many combat sequences, but those which we witness are expertly crafted and quite exciting to watch, especially that last one. For a PG-13 movie, there is a surprisingly amount of blood shown on screen, though it rarely feels gratuitous. And this brings us to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Regarding music, this movie has less of what you would refer to as an actual score. It's actually very minimalist, even more so a collection of various classical compositions, plus a smattering of original music inserted at points by composers Christopher Godon, Iva Davies, and Richard Tugnetti. Given that, it all sounds surprisingly seamless, serving the movie well, especially during some of the more emotional points, such as the aforementioned death of Private Mowat. This lovely orchestral selection is referred to as Fantasia. 
But for me, and so many others who love this movie, this category has to be a no-brainer, as we are treated to a rather delightful diegetic performance by Captain Jack and Dr. Steven having yet another duet on the strings closing out the movie. Just such a fantastic scene, as it accomplishes a bunch of different things at the same time. Ending the film on both a humorous and joyous note, providing a nice mini-montage of the crew of the surprise energetically getting ready to set out to sea, and demonstrating the actual violin-playing acumen of both Crow and Betney as they switch instruments halfway through. It's truly a perfect feel-good ending, and this is helped by, in no small part, by the song that they are playing. A composition by the late great Italian composer and cellist Luigi Boscherini, who was in fact composing during the very time period when this story takes place. The music itself is the fifth part of Boscherini's string quartet in C major, number six, otherwise known as La Musica Naturna della Strada di Madrid. Subject to the requirements of the service. Well, Stephen, the bird's flightless. Yes. It's not going anywhere. category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Honestly, all of the talent is up there on the screen. Everyone is doing what they're supposed to do, and then some. The only real waste is that unfortunately this movie underperformed at the box office when it was released in the fall of 2003. You see, this was originally set as a June release that year, but with genuinely positive buzz starting to build for the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, previous episode by the way, which also featured a Captain Jack if you recall, the studio for this movie blinked by then moving it to November, hoping to capitalize on potential Oscar buzz. Which it did get, as this was nominated for 10 Oscars, including Best Picture, eventually winning two for sound editing and cinematography, both well-deserved. Unfortunately, that release date in November did not give it any more breathing room, as this movie came out amidst a brutally competitive marketplace with heavily hyped and or well-received global blockbusters coming out every weekend, every weekend for about two months, including Return of the King, The Last Samurai, and previous episodes Elf and... Love Actually, yeah. So Master and Commander just never got the traction that it needed, as it ended up making around $211 million worldwide against a $150 million budget. Yeah. So a sequel was just never in the cards. So who knows, maybe a streaming series eventually? Could happen. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. It takes about 110 minutes to get to that highly anticipated boat-to-boat skirmish between the Surprise and the Archeron. But wow, it is so worth the wait. It's roughly 10 minutes, that final battle, a beautifully shot chaos traversing between the hulls of both ships. Very much a violent payoff for pretty much most of these characters of the surprise, whom we have really grown to care about. And not all of them make it out alive. But given that there are just so many highlights in this battle, I will narrow this category down to two. For the first one, a boarding party led by the young Mr. Blakely gets inside the hull of the Archeron, and joining them unexpectedly is Dr. Stephen himself, still recovering from his recent injury, armed with two swords, and he is bringing it. 
Even better, we see his assistant surgeon, Mr. Higgins, played by Richard McCabe, who's also fighting amidst this chaos. And Higgins looks over to him with just such a surprised look of joy on his face, as if to say, who knew that this doctor could also fight? As for the other trailer moment, and speaking of Mr. Blakely, he is played by then 13-year-old Max Pierkus in a quite endearing performance as a young seaman who Captain Jack has taken under his wing. Blakely had the misfortune of actually losing his arm from the first battle in this movie early on. I've never seen a braver patient. But the kids got spirit. And as the story progresses, we see that now having one arm never really stops him from getting in on all the action, on the surprise. Whether that be helping the doctor secure new insects to study on Galapagos, all the way to this truly stirring moment when he enthusiastically leads this boarding party and makes the first shot with his one working arm, holding a gun. Beyond that, we hear him really taking charge by soon shouting at other fighters alongside him to muzzle those opposing cannons on board. Kids got pipes, too. We spend a lot of time with this character throughout the movie, and it's truly gratifying to watch him coming into his own as a born leader at such a young age. And now the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. At the end of the day, two key aspects contribute to this film being such a masterpiece, the structure and the execution. For one thing, apparently, this was actually adapted from two different Patrick O'Brien novels. And on that front, both Weir and co-writer Kali just did an amazing job of weaving all these stories and characters together into something cohesive and emotionally satisfying. Shockingly, of the 10 Oscar nominations that this film received, adapted screenplay was not one of them. Regardless, that does not take away from the brilliance of this screenplay, including a lot of truly memorable dialogue. The only things that keep this little wooden world together are hard work, discipline. Jack, the man failed to salute. For God's sake, Stephen, there's hierarchies even in nature, as you've often said yourself. There is no disdain in nature. There is no humiliation. Men must be governed. Often not wisely, I'll grant you, but they must be governed nonetheless. That's the excuse of every tyrant in history. From Nero to Bonaparte. And I, for one, am opposed to authority. Your opposition is, is not my concern. Misery and oppression. You've come to the wrong shop for anarchy, brother. On the other hand, it did rack up nominations in all the technical categories, including sound mixing, visual effects, costume design, and makeup. And is it any wonder as this film is a technical marvel, which feels very authentic to its time period? The movie never goes for easy thrills nor cheap emotional beats. Everything is earned with both patience and attention to detail. The Galapagos stuff is just a perfect example of that. Many other filmmakers, even highly acclaimed filmmakers, would just kind of brush over that part of the story, as it's not particularly exciting, nor does it even involve the main character, Jack Aubrey. And yet, Weir not only gives it the emotional weight that it deserves, but it films all of it very lovingly, as if you were walking on that island alongside the Doctor. For collaborating to deliver a very thoughtful, yet highly entertaining adventure on the high seas, Peter Weir and John Colley are your co-MVPs. My rating for Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, would be five stars out of five. Overall, Master and Commander maintains a very tricky balance between entertainment and historical accuracy. Happy 20th anniversary to one of the best of its kind. And if you're looking to watch Master and Commander, 
the far side of the world. It's available to buy or rent on all major online platforms. And that ends another Hold Fast review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.